<laughs> yeah. Last Sunday evening, we talked about the beauty of divine holiness. The beauty of divine holiness. And beauty is defined as the quality or aggregate of qualities in a person or thing that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit. So who decides if art is any good? You know, realism is easy. And I, I don't know if any of you are art aficionados or or if you really you know what you're talking about when you see various paintings and you know, you know, last Sunday I showed a, a, an image, a picture of the Mona Lisa and uh, those really famous works of art, those are the ones that I, uh, that I recognize, you know, and, and, you know, like the pristine chapel. I don't think that's right, is it? Pristine. Sistine, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not really, I don't know a lot about it, but I do know, I mean, I know what I think looks good. And realism is easy to identify. If you can look at something, and, you know, for example, I have no idea who painted this image, but, it, but it's it, what, what would be known as still life. And, uh, you know, often still life paintings portray a, a, an arrangement of various objects, even, you know, a bowl of fruit or what have you. And, and you can look at it and see that looks like really what it's supposed to be. And so I think it looks good. But when you come to what is, you know, what they call modern art or abstract art, and I look at some of those things and I wonder why, you know, who had that idea? Um, and why did they think it was a good idea? Now, I understand some arrangements of colors and and designs and all of that. There's certain aspects of that that I can understand. But when you come to things like, like Picasso, I don't know if you've seen any any of Picasso's paintings, but Picasso's paintings mess with your eyes, and not in a good way. You see a picture with two eyes on one side of the head, one on top of the other, and a nose sticking out the other direction, and I don't know, if I were, I heard one man say this, if I were judging that, I'd probably have to take, take points off. And some people, the people that are supposed to know about such things, that are the, you know, the experts, that they say, well, that's just it, you know, they see things differently. And I want to say, well, then they shouldn't be painting art. I want to talk to you for a little bit this evening about reflecting the beauty of holiness. And uh, this w will by no means be an exhaustive uh, look at this topic. In fact, we'll probably come back to it a number of times. Uh, but reflecting the beauty of holiness. I want to draw your attention to the very first pages of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1. We mentioned last week that God, who is holy, commands us to be holy. And yet we cannot have the same kind of holiness that God has and have it in the same way because the Bible teaches us that only God is holy. Only God has an underived holiness. God is holy in and of himself. But we are able to have a holiness that is derived from our relationship with God, our connection to God. Because of that, you and I also can be holy, similar to the way the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light of its own, yet at times you can go out in the night sky where there's, especially if there's a full moon and you're away from the city lights in a very dark uh, area, and sometimes it seems like the moon, I, I've been in settings where the moon even cast shadows, it seemed to be so bright. Yet it has none of its own light. It simply reflects the light from the sun. Well, friends, this has been God's intention for humanity from the very beginning, that we would be reflections of Him, of His beauty. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I've had a number of thoughts about this, and I've just, without thinking too deeply, and the knowledge that I've had in my head, I've at times said, well, it means, it means this, it means, you know, to be made in the image of God, it means we have a soul, um, it, it means, I, I've looked through, I, I remember some time back looking through the, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and, and as far as I'm aware, it is only about mankind that it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so I, I used to think that that was what one of the distinctions between mankind and the rest of creation that made us uh, in the image of God. The original words for image and likeness is the, the Hebrew word selim is the word for image and demuth is the word for likeness. Now, one of the things that's very interesting is to turn over, and I would encourage you maybe keep your Bibles handy if you'd like to follow along. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 20, in verse 4, we read something very interesting. God is giving the commandments to his people through Moses. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So isn't this interesting that... 
humans are not supposed to create likenesses or images of God. Now, let me pause here in the interest of full disclosure and tell you that if any of you decide to do the word studies and look up these words for image and for likeness, you will find that the words used in Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 are not Selim and Demuth. They're different words, but it is the same idea that is being communicated. And God is telling his people, don't you, you are not allowed to make likenesses of me, images of me. But, question, can God make a likeness of himself if he chooses to? Not a trick question. Yeah, he can. And he did make likenesses of himself. So what is it that causes or that gives humans this connection to the image of God. What is the image of God? Well, I mentioned a moment ago, I thought, I used to think it was maybe having something to do with this idea of breath of life, but it's not. It's, it's not the breath of life. Let me uh, point out a couple of scripture verses to you. Notice Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. This is where it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. Now, as far as I know, you can go through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and you'll find that it's only humanity that it says that about, that God breathed into his nostrils. However, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 22, Genesis chapter 7, verse 22, this is talking about the flood. And what it says here is, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. So that means all people and all animals. So people and animals both have the breath of life. And it is, it is a divine gift that comes from God. Uh, there are a number of other scriptures that we could look at to prove this point. If you're interested, you can talk to me afterwards, uh, but uh, you could look at Ecclesiastes 3.19, Psalm 104.29 and 30, and numbers of others that, that make this point, that both humans and animals have the breath of life and that it is a divine gift. So it's not this that makes us unique. It's not this that, uh, that is the distinguishing feature of being made in the image of God. It is also not soulness, if that's a word, soulness. The Hebrew word for soul would be nefesh, nefesh, something like that. And we can look at a number of verses to point out this uh, this idea, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Living creatures is nefesh. Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 1, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Nefesh. Um, chapter 2, verse 7, again, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a nefesh, a soul, a living creature. So, 
Now, I understand there, there's a difference between the kind of life that humans have and the kind of life that animals have. I'm, I'm not trying to go all new agey on you or anything like that. I'm just trying to point out the Bible uses the same words that, that we get the word soul. The same word is used for both animals and humans. So these are not the, the ideas that distinguish us from the animal kingdom. Also, we can look at passages of Scripture from uh, later on, like Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verse 11, where God gives the command, you shall not eat flesh with its life, its nefesh. That is its blood. God's telling them, don't eat the, the, uh, the flesh with the blood in it. Um, for the life or the nefesh of the flesh is in the blood. And the language is no different for humans. Another example of this would be Isaiah chapter 53, where the suffering servant is spoken of as pouring out his soul, his nefesh, unto death. So what is it that the writer of Genesis is talking about when he talks about the image of God? Well, if we look at the passage in context, Genesis chapter 1, we see that it has to do with uh, a couple of ideas. First of all, primarily dominion. Dominion. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> Verse, let's see, verse 30, uh, 31, no, I'm sorry, if you sk- actually, if you skip down into, into chapter 2 and look at the parallel accounts, you see also that there in chapter 2, God gives them the command to have dominion and to reproduce and rule, to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over uh, the rest of the world. And so it is in this regard that humanity is made in the image and the likeness of God. We are to have dominion, we are to rule over this planet, over this kingdom, and also we are to do it in a certain way according to the character, the nature of God himself. In other words, we are not to be uh, tyrants like we know in the world that we live in today, uh, but we are to be, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 24, there he says that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So to be in the image of God is uh, to understand that we are like God in that we represent Him as rulers over creation. In other words, Adam and Eve were God's vice regents, so to speak. They were to fill the earth with godly offspring and glorify Him through their rule on the earth. Thus, the image of God provides humanity with an identity as rulers, and this carries with it the function of ruling over creation and doing it in a certain manner, doing it according to the character of God himself. However, we know how the story goes. That image, the image of God in us, 
became a distorted image. A distorted image. Have you ever tried to look through a cracked window? Or ever tried to look at yourself in a cracked or broken mirror? And you see how the image is all distorted. You can see a reflection there. You can see something there that looks a little bit like yourself, but it is twisted and the features are distorted, and it just does not look right. So how did the image get distorted? We read this story in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I won't take the time to read the whole story, but you know how the serpent came to Eve and tempted her uh, to eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. The devil has always been twisting God's words, and he still tries to twist God's words and God's commands. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course God did not say that. But the woman said, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's a few things that I want to point out to you here. One, I want you to notice the importance of perception. Perception is how we see things. How we see things. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Ah, you will see differently. You will see more clearly. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. The eyes of both were opened. Notice again the importance of perception. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They saw in a new way. And the truth is, they saw in a way that God never intended for them to see. You remember we were talking a few minutes ago about Picasso's paintings? And, and it sounds funny, and it is funny when you see those pictures with the two eyes on top of each other on the same side of the head and the nose pointing out the other way. There's a reason. There is a real philosophy behind that kind of art. And it's not a good philosophy. It's not a biblical philosophy. It's not a godly philosophy. Um, that's a different topic, and that's a rabbit trail I better stay away from. They saw, their eyes were opened, and they saw in a way that God never intended for them to see. You see, God, God gave humanity a choice between good and evil, so hang with me for just a minute. In a sense, they had a theoretical knowledge about good and evil. But theoretical knowledge is completely different than experiential knowledge. Are you with me? Theoretical knowledge means you have just this understanding of this is good and this is bad and God says do it this way and okay, I'm going to do it this way. And you never have experiential knowledge 
of evil. But what happened when they listened to the temptation of the servant, their theoretical knowledge became experiential knowledge, and their eyes were opened, and they saw things differently. And the results were, first of all, distrust. Our enemy, the the devil, is so good at sowing seeds of doubt and distrust in our lives, and that is one of the first things that he tried to get them to do, that he tried to get Eve to do. Has God really said to bring doubt. And what we find is that later on, they ended up not only distrusting God, but they found out they could no longer trust each other. And when God came looking for them in the garden, they said, who told you that you were naked? Because you remember what Adam said, well, we hid from you because we were naked. God said, who told you? And Adam said it was the woman. And Eve said it was, it was the serpent. They find out not only do they feel they cannot trust God, they cannot trust each other. And also there is shame. I don't know how many of you have thought very deeply about this. Um, shame is pretty much a completely worthless feeling and emotion. Guilt has only just a little value. Shame has pretty much no value. Um, Again, that's another rabbit trail, but it's true. And You see, God intended for us to live in a world where we knew only good experientially and where the idea of evil or disobeying God or sin is only a theoretical idea in our mind where we know it's a possibility we could do, but we just, we don't. We don't do that. That was God's intention. And the results of going in the direction of sin and disobedience, it brings distrust and it brings shame. And the image of God is marred by sin and it brings in all kinds of distortions into our lives. All kinds of distortions, all kinds of distortions in creation itself. The very ground that we walk on is cursed, is distorted because of sin. Notice what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. There's that word images again. Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the beauty of God's image and likeness that is intended to be reflected in and through you and I, in this world that we live in, has become distorted because of sin. Now, one thing that I want to be clear about is that image is still present. 
what is sometimes referred to in the Latin as the Imago Dei. It still exists in us, though it is a very twisted and broken and distorted image. And I can, the, the Bible itself supports this idea. A number of scriptures I could point out to you. Uh, these are post fall, post flood scriptures Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. Let me see if I can find that quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image. He is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Now I, I, again, this is a whole other topic, a whole other scripture. Uh, talking about coverings and and long hair versus short hair, cut hair, whatever, all of that. Um, suffice it to say that both men and women reflect the glory of God, the image of God. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 is clear when it says that God created man in his own image, male and female created he them. It takes a man and a woman both to reflect the image of God. Understand that. So, the image is still present, though it is marred and twisted. Another one that you can look at, I'll just mention it quickly, is James chapter 3, verse 9. Um, and though we do not now fulfill God's original design, man's, man's rule over creation experiences frustration, but we still have some remnants of this image within us, the likeness, the image of God, though it is twisted. We are still made in His image, still intended to reflect God's beauty in the world that we live in. So how does that work out? Well, let's talk for a few moments about restoring what is broken. Restoring what is broken. And I'm going to try to move through this quickly, and you listen fast, and we'll try to We'll try to finish up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the promise of Messiah. Did you know that never in the Bible has there been a fallen humanity without also a promise, possibility of restoration? Praise God. From the very beginning, from the very... In fact, in another place, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lamb slain since the foundations of the world. In other words, before humanity was ever created, God had in his mind the awareness, the understanding that there would be a need for a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God speaks to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a messianic promise that the seed of the woman, Messiah, would come. And so you see, friends, what took place is that God came in the form of a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. He came as a second Adam and did perfectly 
what Adam and Eve were not able to do in themselves. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So where humanity failed, where Adam and Eve failed to be perfect reflections of the beauty of the divine holiness, Jesus came to restore that broken distorted image being a perfect reflection in fact the writer of the hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he is the exact representation of his being jesus is the image of the invisible god a perfect representation now let me try to connect a few more dots for you if you look at psalm 8 psalm number 8 really is a commentary on genesis 1 Look at it for a few moments. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul quotes from Psalm Number eight, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, there he is quoting Psalm 8. It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So you see what is happening here. Everything is going full circle. God created humanity and gave us dominion over the earth. We failed to complete that responsibility. We failed to reflect perfectly the image of God. So God came in the form of Jesus Christ, the exact image and perfect representation of God the Father, to show us the beauty of God. And through that uh, coming, God gave him authority. Matthew chapter 28 Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority on earth and under heaven has been given 
unto me. Now you therefore go on the basis of that authority and make disciples. In other words, we have dominion again under Christ. Because of Christ's authority, we have dominion. Matthew 28, verse 19. And we are called to come into conformity to Jesus Christ. So you see, what Adam and Eve failed to do, Jesus did perfectly. And as we exercise dominion under the authority of Christ, we also come to conformity to Christ. Paul gives us this purpose of God in us, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 that we would be made like Jesus Christ. This is the purpose that God has for you and I. We love to quote Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that are the called according to his purpose. But we need to make sure we remember that the good God wants to work in, in you and I is found in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Then one more verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The beauty of of divine holiness comes to be reflected in us again as we again exercise dominion under Christ's authority and we are conformed to his image. I said one more scripture, so I'm not going to read this one. It's Colossians 3. You can look that up on your own time. What we need to remember, friends, is that it's not over yet. Yes, the image of God is in us is a distorted, broken image. But God is at work in Christ Jesus to restore that beauty which is in us. It's not over yet. A little boy was working feverishly, drawing, and his dad asked him, what are you doing? What are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing God. And his dad said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And he said, they will when I'm done. The world looks at us and says, nobody knows what God looks like. There are many paths to truth, many different opinions. And, and your truth is good for you, and my truth is good for me, and and all of these, you know, these pluralistic ideas that are so popular in our day. But friends, God is working in the life of each saint to bring us to the place where we are reflecting the divine holiness, the beauty of holiness in the world. And the world looks on and says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And God says, they will when I'm through with you. They will when I'm through with you. And he is working to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Lord Jesus, we have tried to connect a few dots.
We pray that you, by your Spirit, will take what has been offered up and implant your word in our hearts and in our lives. Would you make us more like yourself so that the world can see the beauty of Jesus in us? And we will thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.